Hey Cole, what do you think happens when a grown-ass man tricks a 24-year-old girl into going out on a date with him under the false pretenses of a career opportunity? Well, nothing good, I can tell you that much. (laughs) It's literally exactly what I was going to say. Nothing good. And I'm going to talk all about it in the 1999 Japanese horror flick Audition. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Cole. I'm Max. And thank you for tuning in again. This week, we are both doing Japanese horror. Normally, we don't tell each other what we're going to do. This week, we sort of cheated on that, and Cole did tell me what he was going to do. So I And I knew that it was a Japanese book. So, I decided to select a Japanese film that I had seen in the past and I really liked to talk about. I just thought it would be kind of a fun theme to do. It is what it is. I want to come in here and mention two things. First of all, if you hear random sounds in the background, my cat is having kind of a psychotic day today. I love her very much, but sometimes she acts possessed. So, you might hear her running around. You might hear howling. My cat is fine. She, I'm not abusing her. She always has her food and her water. She's, <laughs> there she goes. She's just half Siamese, so she talks a lot. Second, you act like you don't normally know what book I'm doing. It's hard to keep it from you. I sit next to you reading the books. Well, but the thing is, is you are always reading something. I don't know what week you're doing any of these books. You're usually quite a bit ahead. True. This is True. I just knew that this week you were going to do the book you're doing. We'll talk about it later. And I knew that it was a Japanese story. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about the audition. Okay. I need another disclaimer right quick, though, because I want to just briefly mention a couple things about Japanese horror. I am in no way an expert on Japanese culture or the Japanese language. So I'm just going to go right now and say that some of my pronunciations may be incorrect. Some of my understandings of Japanese culture may be incorrect. You are welcome to email me corrections or thoughts on it. I would love to hear from you. I did a little bit of research on this, and that's what I'm going off of. So there's that. Also, for people who are just tuning in, I will note that this podcast is heavily spoiler-centered. So if you don't like spoilers, you may want to read what we're doing or watch what we're doing from the title first. Okay, all disclaimers out of the way. Real quick on Japanese horror, because I found it fascinating when I looked into it that... Japanese horror basically traces back to a lot of classic ghost stories and horror stories from the Edo period. Uh, These stories were known as kaiden, which literally translates to strange story. They involved a lot of spirits or monsters called yokai, uh, which usually are some sort of vengeful spirit that eventually became this story of how Shinto gods who were disrespected or neglected would morph into these beings. Over time... Other beings, other than Shinto gods, were able to morph as well if they had untamed energy surrounding them, and these beings became known as Mononoke. Okay, so, that's classic, classic horror. After the bombing of Hiroshima, Japanese horror cinema mainly consisted of these vengeful ghost stories or stories about kaiju, or monsters. 
see Godzilla, for example. Then we get to contemporary horror films, which is sort of where I'm at, and just contemporary Japanese horror, which is also what the book you're doing is from. And a dominant feature of contemporary Japanese horror is haunted houses and or the breakup of nuclear families. Japanese culture sort of has seen an increase in focus on the family, where loyalty to superiors was de-emphasized. And from this, the act of dissolving a family in Japanese horror or culture was seen as horrifying and making it a topic of interest for horror media. The reason I mention that specifically is because that is essentially what audition begins with. So I wanted to kind of mention that that it is sort of a trend in contemporary horror. I also just really enjoy the fact that horror trends are often very reflective of what is going on during that time period. For example, what first comes to mind is like a lot of the classic paperbacks and stuff about real estate horror came about because white flight was such a thing. Yes. And so it was kind of like we talked about in our first episode. A lot of those are like the white family that finds a really good deal that's like too much of a good deal kind of thing. I just find it really interesting that the hot button issues in a society are turned into themes in horror. Yeah. Another kind of interesting example of that, I would say, is how you had after sort of the sexual liberation movement of the 70s, you had all those slasher films that sort of had all these teenagers and their free loving, you know, free sex existences being punished. I think that that's probably not a coincidence. Yeah. Anyways, back to a little bit of Japanese horror. Japanese horror, slightly different than Western, focuses a little bit more on psychological horror, tension building, and supernatural horror, particularly involving ghosts and poltergeists. And something that I found kind of interesting is that a lot of the portrayal the physical portrayal of these ghosts came from kabuki theater and sort of some of the ways that they would portray people when they were acting this out. So that was kind of fascinating to me. Okay. Anyways, that's my little Japanese horror lesson. So I'm talking today about the 1999 film Audition, or under the Japanese name, Audition. It was directed by Mike Takashi. Which, obviously, in Japanese, they flip the names. So, in English, we would say Takashi Miike. And it is based on the 1997 novel by Ryu Murakami. Audition was originally started by the Japanese company Omega Project, who wanted to make a horror film after the great financial success of their previous project, Ring. Ooh. Yes. So, basically, to create the film, they purchased the rights to Murakami's book, so they hired screenwriter, whose name is Daisuke Tengan, and the dire- and director Mike to create a film adaptation of it. The cast was primarily people that Mike had worked on with previous projects, with the exception of Sheena, who plays the main woman in this story. She is a very beautiful, very stunning Japanese fashion model who later got into filmmaking. And all in all, the film was shot in three weeks in Tokyo. Oh, shit. That's a very short filming time. It is a very short filming time. Also worth noting that this movie has almost a two-hour runtime. So it is pretty intense. And I'm assuming they had a lot of footage. So they must have worked pretty hard on it. See, a two-hour running time is why I don't watch a lot of movies. Because I can't even imagine sitting still for two hours 
as is evidenced by any sort of sound distortion in our recordings, because I cannot sit still. <laughs> it's it's a little bit. The runtime to me, I don't know if I would say it bothered me, but I definitely was kind of noticing it a little bit throughout this movie. Yeah. It is the first half of this movie. It's weird because not a lot happens, but unlike when I, for instance, did Society and I thought the first half was boring, the first half of this movie accomplishes a little bit more and it's just more, I don't know how to say it, other than it's more well done. It's it's an actual interesting story. There's more character development and plot development. And I think that's the big thing that I think was missing from society that made me not hate how long it took this time. Yeah. Anyway, so a little bit more about the film before I jump into it. And I know I'm talking a lot, but the film has been heralded as both being feminist and misogynistic. Ooh. Well, I guess you wouldn't herald something for being misogynist. Well, some people would. Anyways, the ending is kind of confusing, and it's interesting because a lot of critics have disagreed on what they think the final scene in the movie was. Some people have said it was a dream. Some people have said it was other things. But what I like is the director basically won't say exactly what it is. He wouldn't explain it, but he did come out to tell the critics that they were wrong. (laughs) So that was nice. I like that level of petty. Audition has been described as a precursor to torture porn films, Mm. which I know you don't love. I don't love them either, but this is different. And I'll talk about why. First of all, there is only one scene of sort of torture and it is not done in the same vein, but it is said to have influenced movies such as Saw, The Devil's Rejects, Wolf Creek, and uh, director Eli Roth, who did Hostel, noted that this was a huge influence on him. I'll talk about why it's not quite the same thing, and it is definitely not. It's not nearly as graphic, and I feel like the whole thing of torture porn is that the only scare in it is showing gory mutilation, and that is not really what this movie does. Yeah. And the thing is, like, torture porn doesn't bother me because of how graphic it is. Like, I'm totally comfortable with gore, though I have a really hard time watching anything that involves someone getting their fingernails ripped out. I don't know why, but I just can't handle that. Random side note. I have no problem with gore, and I can, like, unflinchingly watch it. But torture porn just seems... I get bored. I'm bored. Gore, for the sake of gore, bores me. Yeah, and like I said... It's seen as a precursor, but it is definitely, I would not put it in that genre. And there was even, there was a critic who actually said, unlike Saw and its imitators in the genre of torture porn, Audition doesn't go for horrific money shots. Miike's film lives inside their characters, taking the temperature of their longings, the ridiculous ambitions they chase so obsessively, and their need to experience the extreme to prove they're alive. So it's more about character development, and there's just a torture aspect to it, but it goes with the story. Okay. That being said... When it was screened at the Rotterdam Film Festival in 2000, it had a record number of walkouts. And at the Swiss premiere, somebody passed out and needed emergency room attention. Oh, boy. Which to me just means if you pass out at a horror film, it means you are weak and your bloodline is weak. God. (laughs) Anyway, other accolades, Quentin Tarantino said it was on his top 20 films of all time. And it was also included on the list of 1001 movies you must see before you die. Jesus, that's a lot of movies. That is a lot of movies. Anyways, let's jump into it because I've talked way too much without even talking about what happens in the actual movie. So real quick, the cast. There's only three people you really need to need to know. The first one is the main girl. In the movie, her character is Asami Yamazaki. She's played by 
Aishina, who was a gorgeous Japanese fashion model. She later went on to do Tokyo Gore Police in 2008 and... Meatball Machine Kodoku in 2017, which apparently was a long-awaited sequel to the internationally acclaimed full-throttle splatter sci-fi action horror movie, Meatball Machine. I have not heard or seen of these movies, but they sound great. And I did look up some screenshots and they actually look really cool, so I may watch one. All I could think of was Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. (laughs) Yeah, and then the main guy in the movie, the character name is Shigeharu Aoyama, I will probably refer to him as Aoyama most of the time because that's how he's referred to in the movie. He is played by Ryo Ishibashi, who interestingly enough went on to play Detective Nagakawa in the American version of The Grudge and The Grudge 2. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the only other character that's worth mentioning because he'll come up a few times is Yaohisa Yoshikawa, who's played by Jun Kunimura. He is... Aoyama's business friend. You'll see what happens. So, anyways, are we ready to just get into this movie? Yes, I am. Okay, so the movie opens up with this young kid who is bringing his mother, who is dying in the hospital, a get-well dinosaur diorama. Because I guess that's a thing in Japan. But, anyways, she dies before he gets to her room, so no diorama for her. Well, I don't know if it's, like, a thing in Japan, but, like, I don't know. When kids make art projects, they like to give them to their parents. Yeah, it's actually, to be honest, it's actually super cute. Because it's this very, I mean, intricate for a kid, diorama with all these dinosaurs. And then this little part that says, get well, mom, in Japanese. This movie is subtitled, if that was not clear. Obviously, I don't speak Japanese. But it was adorable. Anyways, it's interesting because she dies. And then it cuts to seven years later. And... Aoyama has not remarried, and so it's him with his son. Clearly, their nuclear family has dissolved. Yes. And that was a huge theme of horror that we had talked about. So now it's a family with just a single dad and the son. There's some shots about them being a family together, like fishing and stuff. That's not that big of a deal. But it shows Aoyama at his job. I believe he's in, he's involved somehow in the film industry. It's not really clear. His office was super cool, though, because it just... It, the walls of the hallways were just bookcases filled with manga. And I thought that was kind of cool. Interesting. Yeah. So Aoyama meets Yoshikawa at a bar. Yoshikawa is just his business associate friend and decides that he wants to get married because his son had told him that he looks worn out and he needs a wife to revitalize him, which is probably not the best reason to get remarried, but that's where we're at right now. Aoyama tells Yoshikawa that he wants a mature, confident career woman, not somebody younger, And Yoshikawa tells him that this is possible and what they should do is hold an audition. And what he's going to do is basically say that there's this new movie searching for tomorrow's heroine and they're going to hold auditions and there is maybe going to be a movie, but really they're just trying to seek a wife for Aoyama. So they're holding auditions to find Aoyama a wife. He does. (laughs) That sounds like the basis for just a real healthy relationship. Yeah, it's not that great of an idea. They do say that there maybe will be a movie, but that whoever they cast in the movie wouldn't be his wife anyway, because something about like actresses being like super sad and stuff, and he doesn't want to marry the type of actress that could portray somebody like that. It's it's weird. Anyway, so Aoyama is looking through these applications at his house, and it's basically like these applications that I can't read because I don't read Japanese, and then pictures attached to him so he's really just sorting through the pictures like people do on like dating apps and stuff yeah and then he looks up on his desk and there's a picture of his dead wife so that's kind of a boner killer and he has to turn the picture around 
So. That's awkward. (laughs) Yeah, basically. So his friend calls and asks how he's going. And he's like, it's just as hard as choosing my first car was. And I mean, I don't know about that. My first car was basically the first one that I could afford that I saw. So I don't know. He's obviously looking at finding a new wife as if he's going car shopping, which is probably not healthy and also says a little bit about his character. I will say that in the portrayal of him, though, up until this point, and in a lot of the movie, he's not really, like, a bad, bad guy. Aside from the fact that he's, like, wife shopping. Yeah, you know, just aside from the institutionalized misogyny. Like, I mean, he goes fishing with his son. He did say that he wanted, like, a strong career woman, like an independent woman and stuff like this. All men say that, and then they get very threatened when their wife is successful. Yeah, all men also say that they don't want somebody younger, but then what happens, which is exactly what happened to Aoyama, is he's going through the pictures, and then he sees this 24-year-old girl, Asami, and is like, oh, maybe I do want younger. Because then he's all up in her application, but her application is like high school me's notebook and it's filled with shit like to live means to approach death gradually high school use notebook the things i randomly say at work you know to be honest it's actually a pretty awesome line but her essay is just filled with all this like weird morbid shit so anyways so then this his son comes home and is hanging out with this girl who basically is dressed like sailor moon In a great way. And they're talking about dinosaurs. He's like a teenager and he's obsessed with dinosaurs. It just is what it is. And I guess that's why, like, he had the dinosaur diorama for his mom. Now as a teenager, he's obsessed with dinosaurs. I think he's, like, maybe wanting to be a paleontologist or something. I was about to say, paleontologists don't just grow on trees, love. Anyway. Oh, side note. They have the cutest little beagle. His name is Gangu. He plays no part in the story of this movie, but he's adorable, and so I will mention him. I like talks. (laughs) Me too. He's really cute, actually. All right, so anyways, let's fast forward a little bit so we can get to the audition, because that's what this movie is about. It's basically Aoyama and Yoshikawa auditioning these girls. The first girl is named Yu Tanaka. She is not important in any way, but I did notice that Tanaka is also the name of the guy in Kill Bill who insults Oren Ishii and gets his head chopped off. Anyway, God. <laughs> the only person asking questions is Yoshikawa. Aoyama seems very uninterested. Yoshikawa is asking questions that are clearly designed to see if these women would make a good wife. He's asking things like, have you ever had loveless sex? Which is like, I mean, who hasn't had loveless sex? Also, but like in asking that, he's like, so marital rape, a deal breaker for you? Yeah, kind of. Honestly, I didn't even think of it like that. That's all I hear. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It's a creepy question. Anyway. so then, I threw you off by saying marital rape, didn't I? Well, yeah. I mean, it's a mood changer. It really is. In a lot, on a lot of levels. Yeah. Anyway. He's also asking things like, are you into drugs? What does your father do for a living? Et cetera, et cetera. But to be truthful with you... The girls don't react. That's pretty believable because I'm pretty sure that when you go into audition, if you're trying to get some like big movie role, I think they do ask you a lot of weird things. And people are so excited or wanting their big break that a lot of times they're willing to sort of do whatever, answer whatever. And I think a lot of times it results in exploitation. That's a side note. So 
Aoyama excuses himself to go to the bathroom and then sees Asami waiting. He recognizes her from the photo and is immediately, like, smitten with her. And so that's made very apparent. Then back in the auditions, there's one girl. She gets naked. One girl's, like, showing the scars on her wrist and being like, this is my first suicide attempt. This is my second suicide attempt. Then she talks about her her little time in the psych hospital, which is a little bit strange to bring up in a job interview. But I do applaud her brave willingness to discuss mental health in such an open forum. So after all that happens, we finally get to Asami's interview. Asami is very meek, very polite, very mild-mannered, very obviously made to be like this. A lot of the other girls were sort of strong, independent actress types. She is the opposite. She's very calm, very feminine. Even the manner, you can tell by the way she speaks, even not understanding Japanese, you can just tell by the way she's talking that she's meant to be this almost subservient, very meek, soft-spoken girl. So basically, like, the super, super, like, racist stereotype of the Asian woman. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And so Aoyama perks up and he finally starts to ask questions But Yoshikawa basically is not feeling it and is like, I think there's something wrong with her, but I cannot put my finger on it. Which is foreshadowing. Okay, so then later that night, Aoyama calls her and asks her out on a date because that's normal for somebody you just interviewed in the job for. And (laughs) sexual harassment in the workplace. I know. We both just got our sexual harassment certifications. We're real, real experts on the topic now. (laughs) Anyway. Our sexual harassment prevention certifications. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, don't leave out the most important word in that entire sentence. I'm certified to be a sexual harasser. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, no. So anyways, Yoshikawa basically tells Aoyama that he called one of Asami's references and that the guy that Asami had listed as a reference has been missing for 18 months. Just in case the previous foreshadowing was not enough, we have a little bit extra. Mm-hmm. But Asami is really pretty, so Aoyama doesn't really care about that. They go to lunch. They He asks her about it at lunch, and she kind of makes up this thing that was like, I was lying and listed him as a bad ref- as a reference because I thought it would help my career or something like that, but I don't really know him. Anyway, after she says that, it basically goes to the scene where Asami's in her apartment. She's sitting on the ground on the floor. Her hair is draped over her face. It is very much so in that sort of Japanese horror style that I think is when we had talked about how it comes from Kabuki, where her hair is draped over her face. You don't see anything but her mouth. And she the phone rings and she does this like slow evil grin. It's actually super creepy. And then there's this like bag of laundry behind her. But then this like weird gurgly noise comes from the bag and it rolls across the floor. Oh, yeah. It's very well shot because her face is so creepy in it and you do not see it coming, the bag rolling. So I actually really liked that scene. So anyways, then there's a bit more of Aoyama and Asami sort of going on some dates. They do it. The It's really well edited. And I'll just mention it that this movie is very beautifully made and they basically have this seamless conversation that you would think of as people who are dating, but it's sort of edited in a way where the conversation is happening among among various dates. So, so it'll be like at dinner and then at lunch, but the conversation is completely seamless. Oh, that sounds really cool. It's done very well. I, I enjoyed it a lot. So then they end up deciding to go to this hotel vacation on a beach or something like that. 
And he's talking about going out to dinner, but she has other plans because she walks over and starts to unbutton her little nightgown shirt thing and takes it off, takes off her bra, takes off her panties, and then gets into the bed and says, come here. But then she tells him to stay dressed and she pulls up the sheets and shows him some scars, some little burn marks on her legs, tells him the story about how she was burned as a kid. It comes into play, otherwise I wouldn't really mention it. However, then she says, love me and nobody else. Which is kind of a big red flag. Seems a little soon. Uh, Yeah. And he says, okay. And then she reiterates that he needs to love her and no one else but her. Because just in case he didn't see the flag the first time, she's going to wave it a little bit more. But she is a really pretty naked 24-year-old, and he hasn't had sex in seven years, so he decides to take off his clothes and get into bed with her anyway. Mm-hmm. This is about the halfway point in the movie. I'll just point that out. So it's about an hour into it. The reason that it didn't bother me is because it's very much so character building, and you sort of develop an attachment to these characters that is so well done. I think that's the whole point, is you see it. And to be honest, Aoyama is infatuated with her, but kind of in a sweet way. Like, he's really nice to her. He, you know, calls her. He takes her out to dinner. He treats her very well. He's always polite. And I think that's the point. It's it's well done. Just say what you're actually thinking. The first half of the movie is entertaining because of the bag rolling across the floor. It's fine. We're all friends here. That is also, I mean, that was that was a good point. So anyways, so then he wakes up in the hotel room and the phone is ringing and it's the front desk saying that Asami has left and they wanted to know if he was going to continue staying in the hotel. And Aoyama doesn't know why she left. She left no notes or anything like that. And he doesn't know how to find her. So instead of just being like, well, I guess she didn't like the sex that much, which is what I was thinking, he goes through her application and finds that there was this, she had mentioned going to ballet school But she had to stop being a ballerina at age 18 because she hurt her hip. So he goes to the ballet school to see if he can find some information on her. The ballet school is boarded up and closed, like out of business. So he decides to just rip the boards off and go in anyway, like you do, because you just break into places. And for some reason, when he goes in, there is this creepy old guy in a wheelchair with ballet slippers hanging off the back of it, playing a piano. There just is. In the dark. Does anything else happen beyond that involving the guy in the wheelchair? They have a conversation. Oh, okay. I, for some reason in my mind, I'm picturing him just like walking in, seeing this, and like slowly backing out. That's what I would have done. Been like, okay. Because also these ballet shoes on his wheelchair are very clearly like little girl's ballet slippers. Oh, no. Mm-mm. No, ma'am. Yeah. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yeah. So this guy turns out to be Mr. Shimada. Aoyama tells him that he wants to talk about Asami. And the guy tells him to go away. Keep in mind, it has been six years since Asami hurt her hip and quit ballet. So, Mr. Shimada says go away. And Aoyama asks if he's ever had any problems with Asami. So then Shimada does this weird, creepy, slow laugh. And turns around and says, have you seen her? Have you heard her voice? Have you touched her body? Made love to her? And it's getting like super personal at this point. And then it's revealed through a flashback that it was Shimada who actually caused Asami's burn marks on her thighs by burning her with incense sticks. Like big Japanese yeah. incense sticks. 
So then Shimada turns around and he stands up and it's revealed that he has prosthetic feet. Like he, like he has no actual feet and he tells Oyama to leave. Oyama does leave and then he kind of recalls, which is shown through a flashback, that Asami had worked at this place previously and he recalls the address. So he goes there to ask about Asami, but the place is closed and he learns through the neighbor that it's closed because the owner of it was murdered and he kind of asks about it. And the neighbor is like, oh, yeah, the owner got murdered. She was dating this record producer, which is also what Asami's reference was, but that she was cut up and it was so bad that there was blood flowing out from under the door and the police had to gather up all the pieces. And when they finally gathered up all the pieces, they realized that in addition to one body, they also had three extra fingers, an extra ear and a second tongue. So that was either another person or somebody with a very specific mutation. All right, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit in the interest of time. I will mention that there's a lot of sort of weird dreamlike montage things happening. One thing worth noting is that there is a point where Aoyama hallucinates himself in Asami's apartment. And there is the bag that is rolling around and a person crawls out of the bag And he is missing three fingers, an ear, and a tongue. And also has had both of his feet chopped off. And he's making these gurgling noises because he has no tongue. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then Asami fills up a dog's dish with this gray liquidy slop that looks like... I mean, honestly, it looks kind of like a disgusting protein shake or something. And puts it on the ground. And he starts to lap it up like a dog. Lapping implies a tongue. Yes, Not lapping up. Sort of like... Slurping. Mouthing it up. Please cut that. (laughs) I am definitely keeping that in. Anyway, after this whole dreamy montage scene, Aoyama comes to... Oh, important part that I completely missed. The reason he had passed out... I cannot believe I forgot to mention this earlier. The reason he had passed out is because... There's basically this scene where you see his super nice housekeeper leave, and then it's a first-person shot where you don't know who it is going through his house, looking at the picture of his wife, and then looking at his whiskey decanter. And then later, Aoyama comes home and pours himself a whiskey and sips it, and then feels really weird, gets up, and passes out. That's what sparks the whole dream sequence. It's also very important. So, anyway. So he comes to, and Asami is basically there. And she is wearing these, like, elbow-length black rubber gloves, a black rubber apron that's tied off with, like, two or three leather belts, and carrying a black doctor's bag. She also has on these, like, black boots. Her outfit is, like, amazing. It would be really cool cosplay, too. (laughs) So, anyways. So, she basically tells him, you're paralyzed, but your nerves are still alive. That way, your skin becomes very sensitive to pain. She then takes out a giant-ass syringe filled with something pulls his tongue out of his mouth, and injects him straight into his tongue. Question. Yes. Because I'm trying to visualize just how horrifying this is. Is it like she goes in at the tip or at like a decline from the top? Okay, so it doesn't show the needle pierce the tongue because it's not that kind of a movie. Oh, okay. What, although later it shows worse stuff, but it basically shows her grab the tongue and then it's a little bit further away when she's sort of like injecting him so you would think that it's probably the tip 
but you don't exactly know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's honestly just more paralytic. Okay. So he's paralyzed. She like rolls him over, sets out a tarp and rolls him onto the tarp. And I was actually about to say nothing good happens when somebody's rolling out a tarp, but honestly, sometimes good stuff happens. Sometimes very good stuff happens when a tarp <laughs> has to be involved. Yeah. So anyways, she accuses him of calling girls to the audition just to have sex with them. And basically that he loves other people and not just her. And also brings up the fact that he loves his son and how she's going to have to kill him because he promised to only love her, which is why it was a red flag in the first place. Also, like, girl, he's not loving his son the same way he's loving you. I mean, hopefully not. I do. This isn't Curse Be the Child. Anyway. Oh, God. <laughs> we don't talk about that book anymore. So then she takes out this box that's filled with all of these, like, giant needles. And not, like, acupuncture needles. Like, big fucking weird, I don't know why anyone has these needles. And takes them out. And enough that she can grab, like, a handful of them. Then she starts slowly inserting them into his stomach. Oh, she cuts his shirt off with with a scissor. So then she starts slowly inserting needles into his stomach. Oh, boy. Yeah. And while she's doing it, she keeps saying in her really soft-spoken, meek voice, kitty, kitty, kitty. Whoa, no. Yeah, so the whole time she's like, kitty, 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 kitty. The subtitle for that was Deeper, Deeper, Deeper. Oh, I thought you were telling me the translation. I thought she was saying like kitty, like like a cat, but whatever like the Japanese word is for that. And I thought you were just like jumping that. No. Okay. No. So the, the, well, the subtitle was deeper, deeper, deeper. That didn't sound right to me. And I'm going to like language nerd out for a while. I do apologize, but I'll preface this by saying, and obviously, you know, I'm a huge language nerd, so I get... I go down the linguistic rabbit hole a lot. So anyways, kiri is actually Japanese for sharp. But when you repeat it, it actually can change meanings and like be interpreted as different things. So it by itself means sharp. But when I actually looked up the translation for repeatedly saying kiri, 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 the translation actually changed to twist, twist, twist. So it's kind of this like sharp, 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 twist, twist, twist. Almost like situation. a corkscrewy sort of concept. And I will say, as she's putting it in, she's like rolling the bl- the needles between her fingers and like di- oh, putting them in deeper and twisting them as she's doing them. Ugh, ugh. So she inserts a bunch of them into his stomach and then she like hoists herself up on him like Onto the needles, but not, like, directly. Like, she clearly is pushing them forward so that she can, like, access his face. And then she inserts needles directly under his eyes. In, like, that puffy skin under your eye. Oh, okay. So just the skin, not, like, in between lower lid and eye, but the skin right Correct. underneath it? The skin. Okay. I thought when she was doing it, because it doesn't show the piercing of the eyes. I thought she was putting them into his eyeballs, and it was grossing me out. But then it was just his eye skin, so I felt a little bit better about that. Then she goes down to his feet, and she basically tourniquets his ankles, then takes out a wire bone cutter and wraps it around his feet and starts sawing his feet off. Ooh! 
And the whole time she's doing it with this bone cutter, she's like smiling, this like really sort of feminine, pretty smile and just looking like she is honestly loving life. And she gets the first foot off and she takes it and she tosses it and it hits the door. Like you do. Yeah, just like you do. Then she's about to do his other foot, but the son comes home. The son had actually previously said he was going to stay at a friend's house, but he comes home and you hear the son say that his friend had gotten sick. Then there's this really weird situation that happens. I'm not going to talk about it too much because I really did not understand it. It's visually kind of cool, but it basically flashes back to him waking up in the hotel room again, but now she's in the bed, not out of the bed. And it's this like alternative life that my interpretation of it is it's sort of the dream of like what could have been or if things had been different in a different reality. But anyways, they flash back to what's actually happening. The son walks in. She had taken out this little spray bottle from her doctor's bag. And I'm assuming it was paralytic spray. It doesn't really like indicate that. And she's kind of spraying at him like like how you spray like a cat that's on the counter or something. And it does not knock him out. He runs upstairs. She chases him. Some other stuff happens. But long story short, they have a struggle. He kicks her down the stairs and she falls and she looks like she's dead presumably dead. He goes downstairs and his dad is barely able to speak, but basically is like, call the police. So he calls the police, calls the ambulance. While that's all happening, Aoyama is laying on the floor with his head turned to the side and he's looking and he can see Asami at the bottom of the stairs with her head turned to the side. And then in this really creepy, but completely effective way, she starts, she looks dead. Her eyes are like deadpan. She starts mouthing and saying words from previously in the film that she had said on their dates, such as how she had been waiting for his call. She's never met anyone like him. It's kind of cool. And then it cuts to a scene of Asami as a young girl trying on her ballet shoes and then cuts the credits. It's kind of a weird ending. Interesting. I kind of like it, though. I liked it, too. And that's why the ending, a lot of critics have basically been like, oh, the ending means this. The ending means that. And the director's just like, no. Yeah. And Takashi Mika is like, no, that's not what it means. But I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so anyways, so that's Audition. Very good. I mean, ultimately, if I didn't make it clear, I very much so enjoyed this movie. I remember liking it when I was younger. I think I liked it more now. I have a little bit more of an appreciation for more artsy style films. And a lot of the appeal of this movie was that it was, it's a contrast, a very artfully beautiful film cinematography. And this horrific torture scene. But the torture scene, and the reason I think it's different than torture porn, obviously, the last thing I'll say about it is it is not gratuitous. It serves a very strong point. It's not all out. It also doesn't show, you know, close-ups of bad things happening to people's bodies. It's not like that kind of a thing. Yeah. Anyway, ultimately, audition, worth a see. I highly recommend it. Anyway, tell me about what you're going to talk about. All right, so what I have for you, ironically enough, though I guess not ironically because you knew what was coming, you mentioned The Ring earlier, and the book I have for you today is Ring by Koji Suzuki. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I knew you were doing Ring, but I did not know that the production company for Audition had made its money from Ring until I had already chosen to do Audition. I more meant just the irony of you mentioning it. Yeah. So before we get started, a couple of things, much like what you said, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce many, many things. 
Like, I know that you put the emphasis on a different syllable in Japanese, and I might switch back and forth, and it would just take too much focus to try and be saying everything exactly, perfectly, correctly, when in all reality, there is no way that I would be able to say it perfectly correctly, because I do not speak Japanese. Also, I have never seen The Ring. Which is crazy. I know a lot of people who did. I know very little about it, walking into it. I knew that there was a videotape. I assumed that the videotape shows a ring. And I thought that a girl climbed out of the television and killed you. Also, for some inexplicable reason, I thought there was, like, molestation of horses. I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) I don't think that happens. But everything else you said does happen in the movie. Maybe I was just thinking of Equus. Anyway... (laughs) Does she, like, drown horses, maybe? Samara? Yes. There is killing of horses. It's like... I mean, I can talk to you about it if you want. No, we're watching it tonight. Okay. Or at some point this weekend. Anyway, so... I walked into this pretty blind, which is kind of how I would have preferred it. Because it ended up being a very interesting reading experience. A little bit of background before I get into it. It was originally published in 1991 in Japan under the title Ringu. The translation into English was first available in 2003. The translation is by Robert Romer and Glenn Wally. I feel like that's important because people who do translation work do a whole lot of work and they deserve their credit. I always talk about the cover of the books. This one's a little bit different than any of the ones that I've done before. It's honestly kind of hard to look at. Uh, In the center is a ring uh, with a skull and crossbones. And then there are red and white stripes coming out from the center. And I can't tell if it is an optical illusion or if it is actually there. But it you feel like there's like yellow blurs kind of around the top and stuff. Or at least I see it. Yeah, it looks like one of those magic eye things that's not incredibly pleasant to look at. Yeah. When I say hard to look at, I don't even mean like, oh my god, it's so ugly. I can't even look at that. I mean, like, it physically makes you uncomfortable to stare at the cover of this book. Yes, it hurts your eyes. Yes. Which is effective. Anyway, the blurb. A mysterious videotape warns that the viewer will die in one week unless a certain unspecified act is performed. Exactly one week after watching the tape, Four teenagers die, one after another, of heart failure. Asakua, a hardworking journalist, is intrigued by his niece's inexplicable death. His investigation leads him from a metropolitan Tokyo, teeming with modern society's fears, to a rural Japan, a mountain resort, a volcanic island, and a countryside clinic haunted by the past. His attempt to solve the tape's mystery before it's too late for everyone, assumes an increasingly deadly urgency. Ring is a chillingly told horror story, a masterfully suspenseful mystery, and a postmodern trip. So before I get into talking about the story, which, unlike what I've done in the past, I'm not really going to talk about plot points. I'm going to talk about the tape, what's on the tape, and what it all means. Because in doing my research for this, I did find some of this stuff from the movie, and it's Completely different. So spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin like what he finds out, but I'm not really going to talk about how he finds it out. So reading it will still be a kind of totally new experience, even if you've already listened to it. But before I get into that, 
his like sidekick in this story, because I'm not really going to talk about the story much, he wouldn't come up otherwise, is a man named Ryuji. I have a problem with him. My problem with him is that he talks about raping women. And Asakawa is like, but he's my buddy. Oh, like he talks about doing it. Oh, yeah. Like they met in high school. And one day Ryuji came to school and was like, I raped a woman this morning. Wait, he actually says I raped a woman? Yes. He talks about like stalking a college girl and then raping her. Is there a point to that? I sort of ish. Like you find out later that this woman that Ryuji was in some sort of relationship with says she says that she does not think he has ever been with a woman. So it's so he's making this up. But you don't know what he's making up. Is he making up raping the women or is he with this woman that he was in a romantic but not physical relationship with making up never having been with a woman? You don't know which is which. It's never really explained. And even Asakawa is like, I'm not really sure. It's a weird character trait to include with somebody. It was weird. My biggest problem is Asakawa's whole like, but he's my buddy. So I'm not going to tell anyone because public service announcement. I don't care if it is your brother, your sister, because women can commit sexual assault too. I don't care if it's your best friend or whatever. If someone's like, hey, I raped someone this morning, please call the fucking police. Yeah. See something, say something. Anyway. So, obviously, you know from the blurb that Asakawa is investigating his niece's death. And he eventually gets his hands on the tape. It's this mysterious, unlabeled tape. Whatever. So I'm going to tell you what each of the scenes are. And then I'm going to kind of, like, break it down. So the scene opens with text that says, Watch until the end. You will be eaten by the lost. What? What does that even mean? Uh, it, it means watch until the end. Come on. Okay. Listen. Then you see a sluggish red fluid that's just like splashing about. Then you see a mountain. Then you see that mountain is actually a volcano and you see it erupting. Then you see the word mountain, which is Yama. Then you see a set of dice rolling around in a bowl. Then there is a woman speaking in a dialect that Asakawa does not understand. Then you see an infant being like held. So you see like wrist, hands, infant and child, or infant in hands. And during which Asakawa talks about this weird sensation of like holding a child. Like he feels like he himself is holding a child while he's viewing this video. Then there are a bunch of faces on the screen yelling liar, fraud, Things like that. Then you see an old TV and the character Mura appears on the TV. Then you see a man's face. The man's face slides out of the frame and slides back in and he's bleeding from his shoulder. And then there is a portion where someone recorded over part of the tape. So it's just like a commercial. And then the end says, if you don't do this, you'll die in a week. Hmm. So you don't see what it says you are supposed to do. Exactly. Okay. So that's like the whole mystery of the story. He spends a lot of time trying to 
unravel the mystery behind the images that he is seeing. And I'm going to skip a lot of that. This is already very different than the movie, by the way. (laughs) I had a feeling. Like, I don't know what's in the tape in the movie, but, like, it's real, real interesting. Yeah. I mean, I would point out the differences, but we're watching it tonight, so I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) I'm so excited because I want to be able to sit there and be like, that's different. That's different. That's different. Because I am that person. So basically... What is eventually figured out is that these are all memories or metaphorical representations of things that I know in the American The Ring, her name is Samara, but in the book, her name is Sadako. So things that Sadako has experienced. So I'm going to kind of go through and break down each one. Some of them I'll go over very briefly And some of them I'll go into a bit more detail about it. So Sadako is the daughter of a woman named Shizuko and a scientist who was kind of studying Shizuko because Shizuko had psychic powers. That comes into play in some of the scenes. So I will go through them in the order of the videotape, but they kind of jump around chronologically. Okay. What each one means. So the sluggish red fluid that is kind of like splashing around is actually like a metaphorical representation of the volcano erupting. It's Mount Mihara. It's a representation of Mount Mihara erupting because when Sadako is a little girl, she predicts an eruption of the mountain. So then you see the mountain. It's Mount Mihara. You figure that out. And you see the actual eruption. Also, interestingly enough, Sadako's mother committed suicide by leaping into the volcano. Oh, that doesn't seem like a way I would want to go. Well, like you do. So the character that shows up on the screen, that is the word for mountain, Yama, is important because Sadako's last name is actually Yamamura, and Mura is the second character that shows up. Okay. So that's like the clue as to her identity that's in there. So the dice in the bowl. Sadako's father, who's a scientist who is, like, studying and publishing papers about Shizuko's powers, decides to do a presentation to prove her psychic abilities. And in front of a large audience, which Shizuko flat out says, like, I can't do that because everyone there wants me to fail and everyone has a tiny bit of psychic power. So in a collective room of people wanting me to fail, I will fail. Sure. The test was she could not see inside the bowl and she had to predict what numbers pop up on a pair of dice. So that's where the dice are from. The old woman is Sadako's grandmother. Pretty much the significance of that is that the weird dialect indicates where they're from. Okay. Because that is important. And helps them figure out where they need to be searching. The baby, Sadako, had a younger brother who died. But I also think that it is representative of a part of the curse, which I will get to at the very end, and I'll talk about in a minute. The faces are the audience from that presentation, yelling liar and fraud because she wasn't able to predict the dice. So the TV, actually, so when Sadako was a young woman, she was part of a theater company, and... The manager of that company walked into the office 
and Sadako was sitting in front of the TV, which was blank, and she was manipulating the TV with her mind, which is kind of a precursor to her having the ability to make this tape in the first place. Okay. Now for the most interesting part. The man's face. So a little bit of background. Sadako's father ended up contracting tuberculosis. And so he was in this kind of like remote area to recover from tuberculosis because fresh air, lung infection. So also at this facility is a man named Dr. Nageo. And he was Japan's last case of smallpox. So what happens is... Sadako is at this facility visiting her father and Dr. Nageo sees her and is talking to her and Sadako is very beautiful. So of course he decides that he's going to rape her. Yikes. So he rapes Sadako. But here's the twist. And here's the twist that I know for certain cannot be in the movie because I would have heard about it. Mm -hmm. After raping Sadako, he realizes that Sadako has testicular feminization. Let me explain what that is. That means genetically, Sadako has an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. But her phenotype, so that's sex expression, I suppose, sure, is female in that she has like a vagina, breasts, that sort of thing. But she also has testicles in her scrotum. Interesting. Yes. So I believe that would qualify Sadako as being intersex. Yes. But so, but no penis. No penis. Okay. And still like a vagina, but no uterus. Okay. So in kind of an acknowledgement of intersex people and the gender identity that goes along with it, I have been this entire time and will continue to refer to Sadako as she because Sadako was living as and identifying as a woman. So I'm being correct. Anyway, obviously, this is Sadako's secret. So Sadako telepathically says to Dr. Nageo, I will kill you because he has discovered her secret. And so he strangles her and throws her down a well. Okay. Later, the cabin that the four teenagers were staying at where they viewed the tape was built over the well. So that is how the proximity to her ghost is Hmm. taken into account. And the people who stayed in the cabin before the teenagers left a tape recording. So Sadako's spirit used her powers. Oh, okay. To put this curse on the tape which is why the tape is all like memories and things that Sadako has experienced. A quick little mention of the curse, and this is actually honestly my last little bit about this, what the curse actually is. And I think this is explained more in the second book, which is also a standalone. So I don't really feel the need to read it and do an episode about it. What the curse actually is, is viewing the tape infects you with a strain of smallpox Because Dr. Nageo was still contagious when he raped Sadako. So technically, when she died, Sadako had smallpox. So it infects you with a version of smallpox. And you are dying from some sort of heart disease that comes along with that. It wasn't really elaborated in what I read online. And I probably should have looked more into what smallpox causes. But I didn't. 
But that is our jump in rationale for how the curse kills you. What it also does is it gives you the ability to conceive a child that is the reincarnation of Sadako. So whether you're male or female? No. If you view it as a woman, you can conceive. And if you view it as a male, you can impregnate. Okay. With Sadako's reincarnation, which in my opinion is also what the imagery of the infant in the tape is, is a foreshadowing of your ability to produce this child. But that's technically not talked about in this book that is in the sequel, Spiral. But yeah, basically the main reason I didn't talk a lot about the plot and a really big part of why as I was reading it, I kept complaining to you about why I didn't really care for it is there were horror elements at the beginning and horror elements at the end, but the entire middle part reads more like an investigation thriller. Yeah. With like nothing scary. Other than technically like the impending doom of Asakawa's death, because the entirety of the plot takes place over the week between when he views the tape and when he gets to the very end. Yeah. And I mean, part of the appeal of reading that genre is seeing the steps that it takes to get from point A to point B, right? So... Yeah. Yeah. Do they ever explain why it's seven days? Not in the book, but I did read online whether this was gotten from one of the films or from one of the other books that Sadako was not dead when she was tossed on the well. Okay. She was just unconscious and it took her seven days to die. Yeah, that's from the movie. But I don't know if that's actually the case in the book as well. They do say that they don't think that she was dead when she was in the well, but they don't specify the seven-day time period. Okay. I was just curious. But yeah, so that was a big part of why I wasn't a huge fan of it, because I don't really like investigation stories like that, unless there is a particularly compelling character. For example, like the girl with the dragon tattoo. Lizbeth Salander is a really compelling character, so I'm fine reading that story because I get to read about her, but it didn't really care about the story itself. Asakawa is kind of boring, and Ryuji's just kind of weird. Yeah. So neither of them were particularly compelling to me, so I didn't necessarily care for it as much. That being said, I really did like how neatly everything fit together at the very end as far as all the symbolism and the tape and stuff like that. So I think my rating for it would be three out of five rings, obviously. Why would I pick anything else as my rating structure? (laughs) But yeah, that is Ring by Koji Suzuki. Yeah, sounds good. It is definitely quite different than the movie. And And I'm right in the like testicular feminization is not in the movie. I am 99% certain that that is not in the movie. I It has been probably a decade since I've seen this film, but I think I would remember that. Because, okay. This is not a sleepaway camp situation. Yes. And my... Spoiler alert for sleepaway camp. <laughs> and my main reason for saying, like, I would have heard about it is the movie came out in 2002. I was 12. All of my classmates were 12 and 13. And I had a lot of friends go and see that movie. And 12 and 13 year olds are not mature enough to see a movie that includes something like that and not talk about it forever. Yeah, that's probably true. No, I'm pretty sure it's very different. I think I'm not gonna talk too much about how it's different because this isn't about the ring the movie. So yeah, no, it's that is a little out of left field. I'm not gonna lie. 
Also, the conception, the like her, the whole point of the curse needing them to reincarnate her is also kind of interesting. I'm not sure that that's in the movie either. Have you seen any of the sequels, though? I don't know what the sequels of the movie are about. I did not see Ring 2, no. Okay. Anyway, so I guess now would be the point where I ask if you were in Ring. I guess the more appropriate way would be to ask if you were in Ring and you had seen the movie, would you die? But I'll just ask the generic question. If you were in Ring, would you die? Well, I can answer both. The appropriate way, yes, I would die if I saw the movie. Because honestly, I would just be panicking so much I wouldn't be able to figure out how to avoid the curse. Oh, I didn't mention how to do that. Spoiler alert before I say this. The way that you don't die is to make a copy of the tape and give it to somebody and make them watch it. Oh, so you can avoid the curse that way too. You can avoid the curse by spreading the curse. Okay, so you can end it by getting somebody pregnant or by becoming pregnant, and you can escape death by showing somebody else the film. Well, I actually don't know if that ends it or not. Oh, okay. The whole, like, reincarnation of Sadako is not in Ring. It's in the sequel. Oh, okay. okay. I just read about it while I was reading up on stuff before doing this segment. So in, in the book, the way that you don't die is just by... You have to make a copy of the tape? You have to make a copy of the tape and make someone watch it to spread the curse. Okay. And they do talk about the curse being like a form of procreation. They just don't talk about the reincarnation of Sadako. They talk about it as a metaphor for making copies of the tape. Yeah. I mean, the whole reincarnation thing may have just been something he thought about later when writing the sequel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sequel is a standalone novel, like that is literally in the description of the book. But I think he just expands on the curse. But yes, I would die if I viewed the tape because I'd probably be freaking out too much to try and figure out what to do. But in general, I also would still die. Because for example, the teenagers found the tape in the VCR of this cabin. And I'm very nosy. (laughs) If I were staying somewhere and I was like, this is a blank tape this one record over. Oh my God, what did they record? And then I'm looking at like disembodied faces calling me a fraud. And then I die a week later. Would you die in the audition? Um, I would say almost certainly not. Not that many people die. And even, honestly, even the guy in the bag doesn't die. He just gets his feet cut off. In fact... I think the only person that presumably dies is Asami from getting kicked down the stairs. I think she's dead at the end is the kind of the point. So I'm going to say no. She doesn't really kill people. She just tortures them and chops their feet off. She does kind of mention that the reason she's chopping his feet off is because he can't leave her if he has no feet. Oh, I mean, I was wondering what the metaphor was there. That's the metaphor is you can't walk away from somebody if you have no feet. That's an interesting way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. I also didn't get into it that much either, but I, t- I talked about how Shimada had burned Asami's thighs with the incense. It does later come out that Shimada is her stepfather as well that was didn't like her and was kind of physically abusive towards her. And she had had other physical abuse, not sexual abuse, but physical abuse in her past. I didn't bring it up because the director actually said that the point of the movie was not to portray her as this broken person and excuse her torture as 
being a product of physical abuse and that that wasn't an explanation. It was just kind of showing this as part of her character. But he didn't necessarily want to imply that she was torturing people because she herself had been physically abused. But he also kind of like leaves a lot to the imagination. It seems like he liked to tell critics that's not what I meant by this. Because I think critics are trying to always sound like the most profound person who understands this movie. Where I think a lot of it is just subject to personal interpretation. Yeah. But that being said, almost nobody dies in this movie. So I certainly wouldn't be dying. And... Even the people who get tortured in the movie are usually getting tortured because they are sort of leading her to believe that there's some sort of an affectionate relationship between the two, which would never happen with me because I'm married. This is true. (laughs) So, yeah. I was there. (laughs) Yes, yes, you were. Anyways. So, thanks for listening. Yes. Thank you very much for tuning in again. We really do appreciate it. If you want, you can find us on social media. We are at Second to Die Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Also Second to Die Pod on Goodreads, where I just came up with the system a couple days ago, but we record really far in advance. You can look to see what I have marked as currently reading, and that will be what I am doing for the next episode. So if you want to try and read it really quickly before I talk about it, it'll be like a book club between you and me. You can also email us at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, honestly. Any sorts of questions, comments, concerns, corrections, if you want. You can, like, meticulously go through and point out every single time we mispronounced a Japanese word, if it would spark joy for you. Or every time we say something wrong. I mean, look, I am no expert on any of this. I'm just somebody who really likes these movies and likes to talk about them. I do a little bit of research, but that's just that. You can also email us recommendations. If you want to hear me talk about a certain movie, if you want Cole to read a certain book, we would love that and we will do that. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.